Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and Alpine heads into the summer break in disarray with team principal Otmar Safnauer and sporting director Alan Permain out, disappointing results, and an uncertain future. So, what next for a team that always seems to be several years away from achieving its objectives, and why the sudden changes? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and more are Scott Mitchell Malm and Josh Suttill. Well, Scott, we're here once again talking about something strange going on at Alpine. I think the last time we did this was in May, so it's become quite a staple of the Race F1 podcast, hasn't it? Uh, I'd go one further with that and say that this is a staple of the start of the summer break, isn't it, to jump on a podcast and be asking what the hell's going on at Alpine. But fortunately, I don't recall after the Hungarian Grand Prix before, obviously, everything kicked off at Spa, declaring that Otmar Zafnau and Alan Permain will definitely still be at Alpine next season. So that's at least an, an upgrade on last year's driver's saga. Yeah, so you're gradually improving, which is very, very uh, positive. And also, Josh, obviously, you weren't at Spa after having a run of races, but you were following Alpine very closely from afar and following Alpine in the previous races. Were you sort of surprised by all of this happening, or was it just the same old for Alpine for you? Well, I was one of the last people to see Otmar alive in Budapest, and, and that's the thing that I will <laughs> be trying to cash in forevermore. You know, I could, I could see it on his face. It was very telling. I walked out of that Alpine motorhome, and I thought... Oh yeah, you know, something's going on here. Of course, I didn't say anything, I didn't write anything, and I didn't do anything with it. <laughs> but just in the back of my head, I thought, oh yeah, there we go. I've cracked that one. First uh, first exclusive done, but uh, let's not do anything with it. I hope that you're spending now the next week telling everybody on Twitter that you knew. You just knew. Even if you didn't know, you knew. And even if you didn't even really know, you definitely knew. Oh yeah, any mention, any kind of way I can force it in, probably every answer on this podcast is going to be, oh yeah, well in Budapest this, in Budapest that. In all seriousness, I do remember Josh coming back from the uh, Otmar media session on the Sunday and saying that, you know, he'd been, you know, I think you think it was like, you know, he's really been been, been good on, you know, needs to have, be given the time and expects to be given the time and that bloody hundred race plan come up again and and all of this. And there, there was... I don't think I don't think we'd be anywhere near as foolish or arrogant as to say there was an air of dead man walking around Otmar in all seriousness, but there was def there was definitely a, a, an increased strain and tension within Alpine management, and you could tell with um, especially uh, the Hungary weekend. Obviously, came after Bruno Faman, the the vice president of Alpine Motorsports, had been given his promotion, and there were some questions that Otmar was dodging and not wanting to address publicly about the fact that he now had someone else to report to instead of overall control of the F1 project. So, 
I will. I, I think there, there's a middle ground between um, Josh's sarcasm and us, you know, having no idea that something was was afoot. There was clearly discontent within the Alpine camp, but definitely, definitely didn't expect them to announce that they were sacked mid. Belgian Grand Prix weekend, but then have them in place for the rest of the Belgian Grand Prix pre weekend. That's one of the weirdest things I've ever seen in Formula One, I think. Yeah, it's funny. After the race on Sunday, um, Fred Vasseur was asked about the whole Alpine thing. Obviously, he'd been involved with Renault when that Renault team restarted in Formula One after taking over the junior capital owned Lotus team. And he didn't want to talk about it too much, but he did say, Well, I'd have waited till Monday. <laughs> rather than having it coming during the weekend. But I think that does also illustrate how quickly all this happened. As you alluded to there, Scott, this tension was was sort of slowly building. And then sometimes it does happen like this, doesn't it? You have something simmering away, then suddenly it reaches critical mass in a matter of a few days or, or less even. And then suddenly there's this schism and it all happens. So that gives us plenty to talk about. But yeah, I guess it's been simmering along ever since those comments that Lauren Rossi made about the the team underachieving that triggered our last Alpine podcast that had something questionable. And I think we had Alpine disarray, I think was in the title of that podcast. But even he's not there anymore. Well, he's gone as well, yes. And uh, with an- well, he's in. He's in special projects. Well, we all know what special projects means. But he's got an excellent reference from his former colleague Alan Prost, so I'm sure he'll land on his feet somewhere <laughs> in the future. That, that, that's my favourite part of the podcast. That's coming up. I can't wait to get into yeah, that. Yeah, that will be uh, coming up later. So let's get into the the, the meat of the uh, of the Alpine story. And as promised in our Belgian Grand Prix review podcast, we will tackle some of the Alpine related questions that were submitted by the race members club so actually we'll start off with one which comes from david teague who asks if we take at face value that otmar safnar and alan permain did mutually agree to leave does it come back to Renault alpine doing things on the cheap and alpine management wanting quicker results without increasing spending and commitments to the team now scott that's a broad question but it's a good way to address the the big picture of why all of this happened and what happened yeah, absolutely. And I think actually the second part of David's question is spot on. The first part is actually and not because the question's bad, but the first part's not relevant. Whether Otmar and, and, and Pemain uh, did mutually agree to leave or not, I don't think has any bearing on um, the, the state of things within the Renault hierarchy and the misaligned expectations. Because um, if they wanted to, if they wanted to leave or they were at odds with management in a way that forced management to sack them and then pretend it was mutual. I think both of those um, results are consequences of the same thing that David points out, which is that that, that Renault doesn't do F1 properly and it, it's demanding a return on less investment. It's, it's demanding a rapid, quicker, more fruitful return on an investment that just doesn't stack up to what um, Mercedes or Daimler put into that team, to what Ferrari puts into its works team, to what Honda's put into the de facto works team that it has with Red Bull Racing. Like, it just it, it just pales in, in, in comparison. And I think um, the, the, the best thing I can say about the misaligned expectations is actually something that James Vowles, who I'm sure we'll come to later in this podcast, having uh, nicked one of the other senior figures from the Alpine project, I asked him about 
how um, other teams, and Renault's a real, real sucker for this, love to set these targets. It started as the five-year plan, didn't it, when they when the works team came back in 16. Then it became the 100-race plan. Then it turned out the 100-race plan hadn't actually started. Now they're sort of vaguely moving the dial a little bit to, well, it would be nice to hit the start of the 26 project, but we'll see how we go up until then, hopefully a bit more progress before. H- how... How do you avoid making that mistake as an independent team? And the, the basically Val's point was that he's not over-promised anything and he's got backers at Williams in the shareholders who don't have the same um, short-sighted, oh, this is really nice to hear from a business point of view, the, you know, these three-year plans, five-year plans that sit so well in a boardroom and, you know, give a, give a real cast-iron, clear path to a return on, on, on the investment. That's what automotive manufacturers in particular suffer from but Renault's like the 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 quintessential F1 manufacturer in that regard in that it 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 doesn't really want to go all in but it's it expects results quicker than expected so what i believe has has happened is that there's just a a fundamental divide between what the people at Enstone thinks realistic based on what's been done so far and the Renault board demanding that this improves and pointing the finger in places instead instead of you know looking in the mirror and asking are we managing this team the best way possible. So I, I do think that's at the heart of it. I just don't think it matters whether Permain and Zafnauer wanted to leave or not. I, I think that's just the root cause. And of course, very often in the corporate world, when you have, say, a three-year plan, usually the third year is very much a flight of fancy because it's so far off and you have a new three-year plan kicking in after a couple of years or something. So that's just the nature of it, how you you lay out your objectives. So it doesn't apply well in sport, which is a a very, very uh, difficult thing. But Josh, the whole timing obviously was interesting, as we alluded to earlier, the fact that it was announced in weekend and they had to see out their jobs the rest of uh, of the Belgian Grand Prix. So I think do you think it's fair to assume that this was extremely sudden what happened here given how untidily it's been done? Potentially, but I I'm also not out of the question that this was already decided a, a little bit or was at least heading in that direction. There was so much talk from Otmar over the last few rounds before Spa about clearly there being a disagreement in the the timelines because he was saying, you know, we need um, well, so, so many years more to win. He, he kept using the examples of, of Red Bull and, and Mercedes, the fact that Mercedes bought a, a championship winning outfit and still needed a few years to win. The fact that Red Bull had bought Jaguar, which obviously, as we discussed in other podcasts, wasn't in the best state, but it was at least still a kind of a, a midfield outfit. Um, whereas, <laughs> as far as he was concerned, sort of Alpine and Renault, even though they'd been around for um so many years sort of they needed somehow another kind of five years and it, it was all a bit of a, a confusing mess and kind of the the explanation itself was even being being tied up in knots but it felt like as much as he was telling journalists for alpine needed more time it, it felt like he was re- repeating those those arguments in the background so I, I get the feeling that it had been going on for a few weeks and months sort of the, the discussions probably f- for most of this year really but yeah, in terms of the final decision, it would make sense that it, it was possibly made um, at the earliest, probably over the, the Hungarian Grand Prix weekend. But if not, then yeah, it could have been even more sudden than that. But we should say, Scott, for all the confusion that these sudden changes caused, obviously Bruno Fama stepped up in the press conference and he talked about it at various points during the weekend. He's obviously vice president of Alpine Motorsport. And he's made it very clear that the project is still very precisely laid out, hasn't he? Or, or, or were, there any, were there any holes in his explanations about what happens next? Uh, well, 
there's definitely um, there's definitely a project insofar as the project exists and it's been talked about and it's been talked about endlessly. Um, and the project is into phase two, um, both on the the Alpine cars side overall and with the F1 team. Exactly what that means. Uh, exactly what changes. Exactly what it will do differently. Exactly how it will succeed where countless other iterations of Renault and Alpine projects have uh, failed. And exactly how that project is different to how it's been for the last 18 months when we have all known, emphatically, or even before that, two and a half years now, where we have known emphatically that this project is Renault's way of justifying its F1 team is to help market uh, a niche brand that it's trying to build up again into a key pillar of its long-term automotive strategy exactly how it's different to that we don't have an answer to any of those questions because it's all so vague and lacking in any kind of detail they don't know um they don't seem to know what management structure they want uh within the f1 team they don't seem to know who they want as as team principal there have been rumors about Mattia bonotto but I, I i don't see him going there because i believe that bonotto only wants to go into a team where he calls the shots and isn't undermined, a la, he, you know, Ferrari. Um, but Alpine's an even bigger mess than than Ferrari, so I can't see Bonotto touching that with a 10-foot pole. Um, and they they just don't seem to know exactly what to, to, to do sort of long-term. I won't get into this too much now, but, you know, it, it sounds like from, from, from what I've heard that uh, technical director Matt Harmon's the one that stepped up back at Enstone to rally the troops. And I'll be honest, my gut feeling is that there might be a vague ambiguous project but I don't think there's a plan it's an ongoing problem with this team isn't it and in fact Renault and F1 if you go back a long way certainly when they had their their previous involvement with uh, with the Enstone team there were always rumors about lack of commitment and pulling out and every now and again Carlos Ghosn would say something not very encouraging about the team which would make everyone worry for their jobs and uh, that kind of thing obviously he was later packed up in a big crate and uh, and sent to, to Lebanon there's a great documentary about Carlos Ghosn I think it's called Fugitive that's well worth watching obviously he's uh, he's long gone from uh, uh, from the top of, of group runo but it just seems to be that there's a certain corporate culture here that just seems to create this kind of situation with Renault and its and its F1 teams it's it's most odd and that's shown by the fact they tended to go in and out so I guess yeah something we just almost have to have to get used to but I think Josh one thing we should really address is the fact that Alpine ultimately is underachieving isn't it they've fallen short of their objectives initially it was to finish fourth again but be closer to the top three than the chasing pack behind that target was uh, eliminated because it was shown to be impossible at Mossaf now in the quick interview I did a few weeks ago with him on this podcast said their new objective was to be fourth fastest by the end of the year and even that seemed quite optimistic at that point who knows what their objective is now but the one thing you have to accept is I guess that the team has underachieved especially when you do look at the likes of Aston Martin. Well, yeah, it's underachieved in, in two big ways. It's underachieved on the car development front in terms of from year to year. That's stemming back from the, the new regulations in, in 2022. It clearly didn't get them quite as right as some of the other teams. Um, and since then, it hasn't really pushed on in the way that other teams like Aston Martin and, and McLaren in season have. So it, it's underachieved on that front. So it's clearly got the, not got the, the machinery up to standard. But there's also been uh, problems with execution as well. I mean, even going quite, you know, the last kind of three, four years, especially, it's been 
had a, a similar car to, to a team like McLaren, but n- almost every time it comes out second best or there's always points left on the table or it was routinely last year um, having a quicker car than McLaren, but was behind it for a, for a large portion of the season. So it, it's not just in terms of not producing a quick enough car, but even when they have um, a, a certain... Uh, even when they have the machinery, they're not even making the most of it. So it's kind of a, a twofold underachievement. And that's quite worrying because obviously you have to fix both, even if they were able to produce a very, very quick car and their execution is just not on a level with, with the other front running teams right now. So yeah, the, their problems are, are very deep, deep rooted. And uh, clearly the, the main one is that the car's not quick enough, but, but clearly there's an execution problem there. Yeah, and realistically, they're going to finish sixth this year, aren't they? They're on 57 points. They're well ahead of that 14 group at the back. They're now a long way behind McLaren, which is pretty extraordinary given how few points McLaren scored in the first part of the season before their sudden leap forward. So, yeah, firmly midfield fodder at the at the moment for that team. And, and it is strange. And I guess we have to attribute it, don't we, to the to, to the to some of the management culture and the instability there and the constant changes of direction because it is a good team. They have got decent facilities. They've got good people. Certainly, while I don't think they've got a Red Bull level of, uh, level of uh, resource and facilities, it's certainly better than what they've got. Yeah, they're, they're definitely underperforming. I think it's not all just about underinvestment. I think clearly with the resources they've got, they should still have been doing a better job both this year and, and in previous years. So yeah, as I think Mark, you said, uh, on the the review podcast, you know this is a, a great bunch of people. There's some real talent all the way through this team, but in the way it's set up, in the way it's going about its business, it's it's just not at all maximising it. There's, there's the, the big question is obviously you know where where does that what, what's the root cause of that underachievement? Because there's clearly a deep rooted issue that no manner of chopping and changing the leadership at at, at the very very peak of the hierarchy is going to fix because there have been various leaders now it's gone through various iterations they've they've binned off technical leaders and aerodynamicists and and whatnot going back to the Renault days so what exactly is it that is causing this and and, and I would argue that while, while there are clearly some institutional cultural elements of this team that have prevented it from really kicking on whether that's on a you know, development point of view or a race team execution point of view, because they do seem to be a race team that has a is a really mixed bag in terms of can max- maximise some incredible results, but can also have some absolute howlers like the Baku weekend this year, which is what helped trigger that Rossi rant in Miami in two different interviews. Um, but I would argue that the only way to fit there are only two ways to fix that. One is through proper, proper investment to ensure that the facilities are absolutely up to the standards of a top level F1 team, which Endstone has you know, gradually been chipped away at over the years. But it was Renault's lack of commitment in the first place that sent it down that path to a near insolvency in the Lotus era, which left it the team on its knees, the company on its knees and put them on a massive, massive back foot compared to everybody else, which... They're still trying to address deficiencies in infrastructure. But the other side of it, that cultural side of it, is one where if you keep chopping and changing the team leadership, how on earth is that culture, like the right culture, going to seep through and actually be lived every single day to the point where the team does work in the best possible way across all forms? And again, there are individuals, I am sure, within the Alpine F1 team who have not done a good enough job, who maybe aren't good enough to be an absolute top F1 team. But the causes of the problems, the reason why they don't have maybe necessarily the best people in there, the best tools to work with, the best way to work, comes back every single time to the ultimate management of the team. 
the one thing we should just try and get to the bottom of, Scott, as far as possible is, do we actually have any idea what is actually happening next in the immediate future? Obviously, Bruno Fauman was giving these rather tautological answers to, well, the project's really important. You ask him what the project is, and he just tells you it's the project, which isn't really telling you anything. But is is this a rudderless ship? Who's who's running the show at this point on the interim basis? Is it Bruno Fauman? He's not at Endstone day to day, is he? No, um, what I would say is, is that I think actually what happened when I asked that question was even worse than how you framed it because I asked him um, how they will run it, how how will the project be different to the dysfunction and the failings that came before it, and the answer I got was we have a project. Like so, like see, that's even worse. It's like that's even worse than what's the project? Oh, we've got a project. It's well, how will, why will the project be different because we have a project like that? That's just. That's just deeply unimpressive. And I'm, I'm loath to criticise Faman too much for sort of how he came across because uh, English is obviously a second language and uh, it was not the most convincing orator that, that we've heard in, in Formula One. But there, but it was the substance. It, it wasn't the style. You know, it, it's not a case of saying, oh, you know, there's a, a, a an older French gentleman who can't speak English. Let's poke fun at him. He clearly doesn't know what he's doing. It's nothing to do with that. It's the substance of what he's saying is lacking. And I think that goes back to what I said before about there doesn't really seem to be a plan. Um, Faman is in interim charge of the team. He's the interim team principal. And uh, Julian Rouse, who was the, who is the, the Alpine Academy boss, is the interim sporting director. Um, and that may well be a position that, that Rouse comes to adopt full-time. He seems to be quite highly rated within the organisation, so that could be the case. I'd be very surprised if Faman is the team principal longer term but they don't seem to know how they're going to play that he just didn't rule it out he's also the engine boss and the overall project boss if he becomes the team principal as well then I can see there being an awful lot of protectionism going on there long term I don't really think he how can it be marking his own homework constantly if he's running the team and the engine division so that wouldn't work my guess would be on a day-to-day basis I mentioned Matt Harmon before I think he's the one that's rolled up his sleeves at the moment and is the the North Star within Enstone, you know, he's a very, very highly rated and highly ranked person within that hierarchy. He's the most senior person left on a full-time basis because he's the technical director. Um, I, I, I think, obviously, probably a mistake if he's the team principal and the technical director in the interim. But they need someone like that. They need a figure that's at Enstone all the time, a figure who can galvanise the team have them working towards a, a common goal. If they did genuinely believe that there were signs of progress within Endstone that Renault were meddling with pointlessly, it's someone like Harmon whose job is to say, look, keep your head down, keep working the way we're going, keep improving on the things that we know are weaknesses, prove to these people that we're on top of this and that with time we will be able to achieve the things that we set out and wanted to achieve but we just need to be patient with. That That's the kind of leader that they need. But, the, but by binning off... By binning off Otmar, by binning off Pemain, by driving Pat Fry to, to Williams, which we'll get into in a little bit, I know, you're, all that experience, all of those people that get looked up to, like a lot of them have been pushed out one way or another. And that's a huge, huge problem to be in. So when you say, you know, is it rudderless? Um, I don't think it's rudderless because I think some people are stepping up. But do they have someone appointed clearly in charge of the rudder? Uh, no, I think uh, I think there's a little bit of, of ad hoc steering of the ship going on. 
it's worth noting as well that Harman, of course, very much bridges the gap between the the racing team side as Enstone and Viri as well, because he does come more from a, an engine background as well. So that's quite a useful strength he's got there. That it, I think that will reduce the chance of it becoming a little bit polarised between the the two sides, which is obviously always a risk when this sort of thing is happening. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's move on now to some of our other questions, Josh. We'll uh, throw this next one at you from Danny Elliott, who asks, any thoughts on the Alpine departures? Well, we've given a few thoughts on those, but the the meat of the question is, and Alan Prost's wonderful verdict on Lauren Rossi. Uh, Danny says, I personally loved it and uh, identifies himself as a Prost fan. It it certainly was a good comment. Obviously, the the key bit of Alan Prost was when he described Rossi as an an inept manager who thinks he can overcome his incompetence with his arrogance and his lack of humanity towards his people. So that's the positive reference I uh, I mentioned earlier. <laughs> what did you make of Prost's intervention? Yeah, I mean, he was obviously wasn't the only sort of ex Renault figure as well wading in. I think there was a quite a long line ready to finally kind of uh, not really axe to grind, but more just kind of speak up. I mean, uh, it's it's not the first time he's spoken up about it. Obviously, clearly his exit from from the Renault Alpine kind of team was quite acrimonious as well. I think, uh, and he's obviously still got. You, I don't know if you call it a grudge against Rossi, but certainly ill feeling towards Rossi. So he wasn't going to waste the chance to to say a few things. But really, when you look at the meat of what he said, you can't really disagree with, with most of it. It's it's plenty of valid points. It's not too different from what from what we've been saying. Um, you know, there's criticism about the targets, criticism about the management interference, and criticism about Renault making the same mistakes again and again. And, and that's pretty much in line with with what we've been saying. So yeah, I think Prost sees it quite clearly. He knows what it's like inside the team. He knows what the problems were back then, and pretty much most of them are, are still there in a different shape, but pretty much the, the same problems exist now. Yeah, and obviously uh, we should mention that when Prost left, he made some uh, negative comments as well about what was uh, what was going on there. So it is a, a long-term thing there. And there, there's something wonderfully reassuring about Alan Prost falling out with senior figures at Renault, given that's a story that goes back to uh, all the way back to 1983 as well, and his, and his departure from the team. So, uh, yeah, it's just uh, one of those uh, one of those amusing things. But I, I must admit, I was never particularly... Well, there was a point actually when it looked like Rossi might have some good ideas, but then it it, it sort of... It, it, that that facade was shattered and I became gradually less impressed with uh, with his interventions in the F1 team. I think the main thing with Rossi was that he came in and he wasn't afraid to um he wasn't afraid, afraid to make changes uh he wasn't to borrow one of uh, Toto Wolff's favorite phrases someone who saw you know lots of um sacred cows in the project or 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 anything like this you know things that can't be touched have to be left the same way he he was willing to 
to challenge established ways of doing things and he wasn't afraid to say when things weren't working. Like those were the positive signs. But then it just sort of became, I don't know, whether it was a saviour complex, an ego, what whatever, but just sort of saw himself as the person that was fixing things, took credit for all of the good stuff and pointed fingers at all of the bad stuff, which is not the not the way to, to lead the team. He doesn't have any F1 experience yet. He was in overall charge of it would wade in from time to time and I think something that was a recurring theme in in what Prost said in 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 the Le Keep uh, piece was that it goes back to his constant experience of Renault at different times through the years where there's just an an, an arrogance and underestimation uh of how hard F1 is and an overestimation of their own abilities the 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 belief that the F1 team can be properly managed from afar and that they know what's best for it instead of putting it in the hands of specialists who know motorsport who know F1 who know what it's needed you know give them the tools give them the resources and let them get on with it but instead there's this this trigger happy arrogance around everything well we know what we should be doing and we know how quickly we should be achieving it why aren't you achieving this okay fine you're gone we'll put someone else in instead that's sort of a, that's at the heart of the 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 Renault mismanagement of Formula One in general it's not just the modern thing it's a long-standing thing it's probably one of the reasons why Prost who's uh, got an idea of a certain way of working has fallen out with them so many times so it's this long-standing issue and I, I just don't see any sign of Renault escaping it which means that whatever their team's called whatever project they do or don't have will always be undermined by this fundamental misunderstanding of how to run an F1 team. And what both Prost and Sirabitbal, another former Renault figure, said, uh, they obviously identified the fact that there's not that star driver at the centre of of it, that they don't have that Fernando Alonso-type figure that obviously they did have um, just 12 months ago. And and, and that is... uh, you know, perhaps an important point too. I mean, Pierre Gasly and Esteban Ocon both great Grand Prix drivers, but they're, they're not that legendary kind of star driver that you can build a team around. They're, they both very much fill a, a similar kind of function at the team. And, and they had Alonso, but probably even more painfully, they had their star driver in Oscar Piastri, but perhaps they could have built this team around. That wouldn't have solved all of their problems. And, and you have to couple with that without management interference and, and, and let that driver and, and that core team uh, crack on with things but yeah they, they've lost their two star drivers really both the one of the present and the one of the future so yeah that, that's just <laughs> when we look at their problems the fact that they don't have a star driver is probably I guess quite far down but that says more about the the kind of problems above it um, than, than below but yeah I think it's quite telling that, that kind of all those drivers who have, have sort of had a taste of, of Renault whether it be Ricardo, Alonso, you know Piastri they, they've all kind of seen what's there and, and thought no going to go somewhere else yeah and Rossi was very much implicated in what went on with the drivers certainly the Alonso side but also the Piastri side because as far as I understand it he was aware there was an issue with the, with the contract because that was the fundamental problem with Piastri they didn't sign him to the proper contract they thought he had and then when he was a free agent he signed for another team they started impugning his loyalty etc which wasn't a very good way of doing things so yeah there's a lot of things that need to be tidied up there but there's lots of good ingredients at the team so with the right leadership they can maybe move on from that yeah you, you probably can't underestimate the value of a, a a good rookie season as well imagine if Piastri was in that car this year even with all the problems they're having perhaps that could have been just one extra glimmer of of something this year in, in such a miserable year or perhaps um they wouldn't have got the best out of him like McLaren have been able to do with with the environment they've given him I must say I'm I'm enjoying the fact that 
this latest uh, Alpine crisis or, or saga has come near as damn it 12 months to the day of the driver saga really kicking off last season especially as the two people who went out of their way to try and almost disgrace Piastri in a way call his integrity into question and, and all of that Zafnauer and Rossi now Otmar might have been acting on orders and being willing to play the, the, the villain to you know try and force himself into a bit more power and sideline Rossi a little bit whatever his motivations may be both of those two made a concerted effort to tarnish Piastri's reputation before he'd even ever sat on an F1 grid and those two people are no longer at Alpine anymore so what was all of that noise about loyalty and and and, and all of that rubbish you know I, I, so I, I'm I'm quite enjoying the fact that the 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 management have slipped into another um case of hysteria and, and dysfunction while Piastri and Fernando Alonso who quite rightly saw reasons to jump ship are excelling in their in their new teams you know they they say the grass uh, isn't always greener but I think it is greener at McLaren and Aston Martin and if they look back over where they've come from they're going to see a lot of scorched earth <laughs> Next up, we've got a question from Phil Wright, which I'll aim at you, Scott, who asks, do we know how the Alpine personnel changes have been perceived at regular team member level? Is confidence in the long-term project dropping? I I don't think there's one single answer to this because obviously there'll be some people within Aston, uh, sorry, within Enstone um, who bought into what Otmar was trying to do, for example, uh, or, or maybe thought he, he wasn't doing things the right way. There will have been people there that were incredibly loyal to Alan Permain, given that he was, you know, an Enstone employee for 34 years, had been there through the, you know, the title-winning um, seasons in, in in both forms as um, as Benetton and uh, and as as Renault played a huge role in keeping the team afloat and you know pointing in the right direction during the the worst of the Lotus years before Renault bought the team back. Um, there might well have been people within that organisation who thought that, you know, whatever cultural or problems might exist, maybe Permain being there for so long is an obstacle to actually implementing, you know, real, lasting, meaningful change. But who's to say you could, you don't know unless you're in the organisation which of those sides would be right or wrong. I, I'm sure both opinions will have been expressed at some point, but the overall reaction, I would say, is that it's frustration that that Renault have intervened yet again without a clear plan and without really understanding how hard it is without necessarily giving the team everything that they need there'll be frustration there there'll probably be an element of exasperation about another change of leadership another person to come in um, and there'll be confusion as well because there isn't a a clear plan in place they don't know who's going to be the team boss in the future, they've got a chief technical officer on the way out now as well, or having left and, and joining another team. Um, the, the, that, that, the impact of that should not be underestimated because that's why the job of someone like Harmon, for example, is going to be to pull everyone together and make sure that there isn't a lot of drift over the next few weeks or months, however long it takes to, to put in place. So I can see there being a, a huge amount of frustration and Normally, that would be offset slightly by, you know, a bit of excitement and opportunity around being able to reset, go again, do things differently, do things in a better way. But that team's been asked to do that an awful lot over the last few years. And my gut feeling is that, you know, not the the, the plan seemed to be that there is no plan is just going to have a lot more negatives to it than, than positives. 
Next question for you, Josh, comes from James Lee, who says, with all of the changes that have taken place at Alpine over the last few years, coupled with what seems to be a complete disconnect over long-term goals and how they are to be achieved, does the team foresee a situation where Alpine Renault cuts its losses and leaves F1? And we should note, Josh, that Forbes recently valued that team at 1.4 billion. So there's a lot of value tied up in that for, for Group Renault, even though they have sold off a little bit of it recently. Yeah, exactly. There would be uh hasn't been a, a better time to sign F1 team than now in terms of uh value. But uh yeah, you guys covered it really well in the in the review podcast. And I think what you guys said about kind of, you know, it'll be for as long as, as Alpine wants the the project to be promoted, for as long as they think that's valuable, I think they'll they'll keep around the team. It doesn't seem like a team that's really that focused around results uh, in terms of w- where their future lies. It's more on what can can this team do for, for Alpine's value, which has always been ironic to me because I always thought the best way to promote Alpine would be for proper investment and for a winning team. And then I think pe- a lot more people might take notice of Alpine. A lot more people might perhaps buy one of their very exclusive sports cars if they were winning races in Formula One. So, um, yeah, that, that kind of situation is always going to be quite fluid, I think, especially now in terms of it being a, a bit of a mess of what comes next it, it's probably going to going to depend on that um i'm sure they'll be looking at 2026 and thinking oh that's probably our latest chance for a bit of a reset i think if there was not progress at, at that point then you'd have to consider um yeah alternative options obviously on the engine side they'll be working hard to to get the engine for 2026 i think i get the feeling that that engine commitment is very firm but as we've seen previously perhaps the that the team can be a, a separate thing. I think the, the engine projects probably would be a bit more committed, but the team, I'd at least hope that they'll stick around for, for one more reset, but really surely that's got to be the, the last roll of the dice once they get the new people in place. Once that team hopefully has some time to, to get some results, if the results don't come, then yeah, I think uh, <laughs> half a consideration has to be to just cash in and just uh, get rid of this mess and then probably in another 10, 20 years, just start it all again. <laughs> yeah, the cycle continues. But it, it's worth noting, Scott, that we do have this new teams process that we're waiting on the results of now. Several of those new teams are working with Alpine on possible supply deals, that kind of thing. So if you weren't to get an F1 entry, if you were an Andretti or a high tech or someone like that, you'd probably have a quick phone call to Renault just in case something could be done and, and you could buy your way in if you're if you're still committed and you've got the capital to do it. Yeah, I'd be asking them exactly how committed they are to that project and how long they see that project lasting. Because um, when when Renault were were doing the rebrand, it it did feel like Alpine, the Alpine element, was a really good way for Renault to be able to justify the existence of the F1 team to the board longer term. In terms of obviously, Renault likes being in Formula One, but for the main group itself, Renault as a manufacturer gets a gets very little out of being in F1 if it's not winning because it, it just looks inferior to a lot of rivals and uh, on the car and especially the engine side, you know, th- th- there's very little to be gained from running around as, the, you know, between the fourth and sixth best team in F1. But for Alpine, which, you know, has very, very little resonance outside F1, especially in the first few years, there's an enormous gain to be had just by having your name and your brand and that little that one little car plastered everywhere. It's huge in terms of boosting that global profile. But there will, that will reach a point of diminishing returns because 
obviously there's an intention from Alpine to 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 add more models to the to the range and and, and sell sell them in the US and and all of this as part of phase two of the Alpine Cars project. But there will also come a point where that F1 team needs to have success. Otherwise, again, you know what exact what message are you actually are you actually sending about that brand and what are you actually um, achieving once you reach a lot of that initial kind of um, awareness, brand awareness, because like I say, you, you, you hit a point of diminishing returns. And if that's where Alpine are now, or that's where they are in two or three years time, then that's at the point where I think Renault would pull out of F1. Because I, I, I think history proves that they're not totally committed through thick and thin. Uh, history proves they don't really know what to do with their F1 team or how to run it. Right now, there's a clear benefit to having it and a clear intention to use it to further something within a, a big strategy. But that will change. And when it does, I don't see why Renault would keep ownership of it. And I think it would probably make sense to cash in and, and sell. And Andretti would be first in line for that, I would imagine, if they don't get onto the grid sooner. Yeah, certainly the whole Alpine brand resurrection doesn't seem to be going super well. It's not especially uh, resonant with people. I don't know, maybe that's a longer-term thing. I need to give it more time, but yeah, I'm not entirely convinced by that. And the final question, Scott, comes from Jack Aitken, which is our Jack Aitken rather than the former Renault F1 test driver, Jack Aitken, who asks, since their return to the sport, Alpine Renault have been consistently and significantly outperformed by the other manufacturer teams. I'm curious about what level of financial and engineering resource the F1 team receives from the Renault parent company, and how this can compares to some of the other large manufacturers like Ferrari and Mercedes? Well, I would say on the engineering side, obviously with it being a works team and, and having its own engine, that's where a huge amount of the, the, the Renault resource goes directly in terms of engineering and, and, and personnel and uh, spend on the, 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 the very facility. And there will obviously be inevitably be crossover there because integration between power unit and chassis is is absolutely critical. So um, the way that they test chassis and engine together will be something that that, that Renault presumably takes a, a significant input in. And I would say that that's sort of much closer to the um, Ferrari way of doing things, for example, than Mercedes, because um, Mercedes, is F- Mercedes F1 team, you know, between Brackley and Bricksworth, they're almost two high-performance specialist in independent organisations that are contracted by Mercedes to be the Mercedes F1 team. It's sort of one one way of kind of viewing it almost. Um, so that Mercedes input is, is a lot less and a, a lot less tangible and a, a lot less direct. On the financial side, if I'm... I'm I apologise if I've got this wrong, but I believe the last set of Alpine racing accounts, that's the UK company, the F1 team, disclosed... Disclosed within that is a reference to an intercompany loan that I think is at about 125 million pounds. So I don't, I, I assume that covers from the very start of, of it, from 2016. So obviously, as a single figure, over 100 million pounds been put in by the Renault Group, which is obviously a very significant sum. But then you realise actually, if that let's say let's take it at face value and say that that started in 16, it might have even started a bit later. But you know, you're getting less than 20 million a year. Investment, and I'm sure there would have been other things. Uh, I would imagine there would have been other things in in addition to that, and there might well be more money going in before. But when you really break it down, that doesn't. If you think of the infrastructure that needs to be improved, the budget to make sure that the team goes racing properly, 
doesn't feel like Alpine or Endstone, maybe we should say, really benefits from a full-on kind of unquestioned investment, especially for a team that has to spend more to get back to where to the level it needs to be at. And I remember the first iteration of the Renault Works team, Cyril Abitable talking about, I can't remember the exact number he used, so I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm sure he said something along, along the lines of Renault needs to beat Ferrari and Mercedes while spending sort of 80% of what they're spending. So it has always been the case that Renault intended to do this in a more cost-effective way, which is you know a very generous way of saying it, a slightly cheap way. Yeah, and historically, that's always an, an alarm bell because ultimately the resources, the financial resources define how much you can do. If if you get 100% out of the budget you've got across the board, not just your racing budget, but for the whole thing, and another team gets 100% out of more, they're always going to beat you. And that's the big problem. And you will always see teams trying to make a virtue of the efficiency. In fact, Jaguar was mentioned earlier in this podcast. They were one in latter years that tried to make a virtue of that. Oh, we have to be clever. or We have to do this. We have to do that. Having less money is not an advantage. And anyone who tries to sort of say, well, we can try and make up for that with efficiency or whatever, or even sometimes they claim it's, it is a literal advantage because they have to be cleverer. Yeah, it's just optimistic. And even in cost-capped F1, there are some limitations there. It's, it's worth noting this team is still very well equipped. They've got a lot of good facilities, equipment, people, etc. It's not a, a team that's sort of a million miles away from the top teams, but it, it is a clear step back, and, and that's the big problem that they've got. But, yeah, these are all problems that Alpine F1's new leadership, whenever that's in place, will, <laughs> will have to take on. The um, do, do you think Alpine have tried working smarter? Do you think maybe they should try that? <laughs> yeah, that's always the thing, isn't it? Give uh, give people impossible amounts and to do and impossible objectives, and then if they push back, say just well work smarter, and actually you'll find you're able to do it. I remember once having a conversation with someone about resources and what you can get done, and they were irritating me. And I said, right, you talk about efficiency and working smarter, and that was a phrase that was used. Could everything in this company be done by one person? And they say, well, that's a ridiculous thing to say. No, 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 no. that's just establishing the principle that there is a finite throughput that can be achieved by certain resources. And and that's always the thing, that you can't distort things so that you have unrealistic objectives. It, it, it requires certain resources to do certain things, and you have to be realistic about them. I'm not sure Alpine and Renault Group have been. No, because that's what Abitable has said, which is that uh, ultimately, if you if you tell yourself... If you tell yourself, a, you know, convince yourself a certain reality exists, then you'll just keep telling yourself stories, and you'll never actually front up to the problems that are there. And I think that's what that's how it works at the top of Renault. They're absolutely adamant that an F1 team can fr- thrive on X, and X can achieve Y. And when it doesn't, they're baffled and angry because they think they know best, and they'll tell themselves that it's nothing to do with what they're putting in. It's the people that are, you know responsible for the output that are, uh, that are the problem and that's where the finger pointing becomes and uh, comes in and the arrogance is, is the issue and, and everything we've discussed before ultimately they, they want to win titles which means they think they can or they, they want to aspire to beating Red Bull we've talked about how efficient Red Bull have been this year both with their car and, and their race operation so yeah I don't understand how they can do that with even less resource there's, there's, there's just not the headroom is there to be no matter how efficient you are no matter how good your practices are with the way they're going there's just there's just no capacity to to beat what is currently at the top 
the positive thing is that there is a good starting point there. They're not coming from nothing. So we're not completely writing this team off. But for me, what's absolutely essential is that this team is given the leadership it needs and largely left in loan. Yeah, there always has to be a little bit of corporate oversight and that kind of thing. But manufacturer teams in Formula One for a long time now have always thrived only when they have the necessary autonomy. Give them what they need. Let them make it work. Don't interfere. Don't undermine. I think that's the key direction for Renault and F1 from here. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Well, let's now talk, Josh, about something we mentioned briefly earlier, Pat Fry's departure to Williams. We haven't mentioned him becoming Williams' chief technical officer on the podcast yet, so it is worth uh, a discussion because he held that role at Alpine, obviously, so he's part of this exodus. Do you think this is a good appointment? Definitely. He's incredibly experienced, you know, experienced at Benetton, McLaren and Ferrari, a brief stint at the last days of Manor and back at McLaren for a bit of a temporary assignment to kind of help them reshape in, in their kind of own restructuring a few years ago. And obviously a, a stint at Alpine for about three or four years. So he's got that that great experience, I think, especially with, say, the two McLaren stints. You know, he saw the team in one guise for, for almost 20 years and, and have plenty of success and failure through the, the 90s and the, the 2000s. And then he sort of came back at the end of the 2010s and, and saw how the, the team had both changed for the better and for the worse. So, yeah, he, he's got that great experience. He was obviously at Ferrari, like I said, in for the early 2010s. So he, he's got great experience of, of front-running operations and, and what's needed there. So I think it's great for him to, to take that experience and to, to, to a team who, who very much wants to be part of this long-term long-term build-up it's interesting because obviously a lot of the the noises around the time of uh Valsa's, uh appointment were about appointing somebody perhaps with who is uh you know not quite as experienced as as this so this was a, a bit of a surprise to me when the the announcement was made but i, I think it makes a lot of sense with the the experience he's got he's going to be i think a, a valuable asset to to that team yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense when you look at exactly what his role is. He is chief technical officer, so this is the top level of, of senior management, part of the C-suite. That's a term that uh, that James Vowles likes to use uh, the, for the, the sort of the group of, uh, of chiefs there, which of course have been completely revolutionised at Williams in in recent times. What Fry is is he's the technical leader who's able to be strategic look long into the future, focus on the technologies, the culture, a lot of the big picture stuff. I don't think he's your 
you know get get his hands dirty really day to day on the current car in terms of injecting all that creativity that kind of thing he's more sort of the wider facilitator communications all these things which i think is really really valuable and that was clearly appealing to williams and i think it's yeah it's important to to understand what technical of chief technical officers and technical directors and that kind of thing are now they are management roles and almost the uh the, the creativity and the ideas and the, the the kind of the car design it's less about them because they're more about facilitating it and the direction and that kind of thing. And it's a, it's a proper job too because sometimes we have the, the kind of consultant role where an experienced engineer will will come in and, and sometimes they're absolutely invaluable and, and a, have a great contribution. But sometimes I think we've seen that they're appointed to that, but their involvement is is fairly minimal. But I think also you know Vals is going to appreciate this appointment too to kind of free up some of that space for him as well to focus on the team because I think he was kind of having to kind of have a foot in both camps in terms of you know looking to the future and uh, establishing things so it's probably given him a bit more of, of space as well to operate with uh, this appointment because it's been well obviously once it, it comes into effect because uh, yeah he's had this first kind of it'll be his first uh, year or so of having to do kind of both roles so uh, yeah he'll definitely appreciate having this yeah, he'll be starting uh, later in the year. I think it was November is that was, was the date given. Scott, you heard from James Vowles about the reasoning for this appointment. So how are they rationalising it and how high up the list was Pat Fry of contenders? Uh, so high up the list that Vowles actually approached him before he'd even officially started at, at Williams because everything that you talked about there was, was basically what Vowles was explaining as as the rationale. He he saw Fry as someone who ticked so many boxes in terms of the way he works, how he views things, his track record, his experience, and a lot of what he did at uh, McLaren and Williams, uh, sorry, at McLaren and, and, and Renault um, was, uh, I know it does it a bit, uh, it's a bit of a disservice, but, you know, it is elite level firefighting and troubleshooting. You know, Fry has gone into organisations that haven't worked and played a key part in turning them round and 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 helping them identify structures and and processes that that were a problem before and aren't anymore. So um, Vals was straight in there before he'd even officially started as team principal, making it clear to Fry that he was the one that that, that Vals wanted at, at Williams and starting to sell him on the vision. And then over the course of sort of two or three months, he was winning Fry over. And then I think as Alpine, the the plan that Fry wanted to be a part of there and the work he wanted to do there probably saw that that wasn't going to be as achievable and there was actually a a genuine project to be a part of at Williams, one with a real strategy, one with people in place and, and, and proper funding and, 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 a, and a, a means and desire to do things properly. And I think it worked for, for, for both parties. So when we say sometimes that... Um, you know, you have to look at who's available and, and who you can actually, you know, who you can realistically get versus who you want. I think Fry Fry is in a is the cross section of that Venn diagram for for Williams. He's both willing to to join and someone that that Williams really wanted and will benefit from. Yeah, and there's still other recruitment to come. They still need a head of aero, and that will be a little bit more day-to-day if you want to look at it that way it's not that Fry is going to be part-time but he is really looking at the big picture and I imagine one of the things he will be focusing on is 2026 he's been good at the past in focusing on like the next year project he's often been the guy in teams to do that or the longer term new rules project so that's what 2026 will be and I think it's quite a good appointment from uh, from that perspective and the important thing is that 
that will also allow Vals to not have to juggle some of that side of things as part of his job. Obviously, he's got quite a broad job as team principal and he'll have been having to get involved in a little bit more of that that technical strategy, shall we say. But now they've got a, a technical strategic leader, let's say, in that team. And these teams are so complicated now that there's uh, you have to have somebody who is really being that technical manager and that technical leader in that form, as well as having car leads there was a time when the technical director was purely a car lead but it doesn't really work like that now with the the size of these teams and overall though Josh the Williams project it's going all right isn't it they're having their moments this year very 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 long way to go but they're a team that while it's going to take years for them to be able to get to the front unlike Alpine they at least feel like they're going in a direction yeah and they're not really throwing out any kind of silly you know, 100 race plans or we'll be world champions in five years kind of thing. They've been much more realistic and, and grounded. The question for me, particularly with this year, is just kind of how much of this is is last, you know, the previous regime and, and how much is the, the new one? Because I guess the, the, the car and the kind of general, you know, development direction was that set last year or was that set within this year? I guess more and more recently we've been having more input from, from this year's team. So, it, with the, with this, it's always interesting to see where, where is it going to go because certainly for this year they made a step forward. The, the question, of course, is going to be can they continue to or have they kind of hit uh, hit a bit of a ceiling? But yeah, at the moment they're, they're they're doing a good job. They've got you look at some of the gaps from from last year's races to this year's races and that they've made huge gains. Um, you know, I know Albon was saying at the start of the year, you know, without Aston Martin's kind of big leap, a lot more people will be looking at Williams and. I think that's fair enough because uh, they have made a good step from last year. It will just be a case of, you know, can they continue to build on that? Yeah, well, they're in the mix for seventh in the championship at the moment. That would be a very good return for them and their best championship position in quite some time. So, yeah, long way to go, but there's a good direction of travel there. And they've got the sort of solid lead driver as well to really build the team around. Um, you know, in Albon, they've they found a, a perfect team leader. So, yeah, you, you can't... Uh, that's got huge value as well, so... Yeah, as long as they can keep hold of him, then uh, they've, they've got a really good team leader there too. Yeah, there's a few lessons there for Alpine, which is, isn't good news. They should be taking their lessons from the teams ahead of them, really, rather than those that are inching up behind them. But yeah, long way to go for Williams, but some positive signs there. And certainly James Wales's first half season so far has been very impressive as Williams team principal across the board. Well, thanks very much to Josh and Scott for your insight. Head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there, even throughout the August break check out our other podcasts including bring back v10s the race f1 tech show our indycar podcast formula e moto gp and also have a look at our youtube channel long and short form videos there well as i said we're going to keep pressing on through the august break so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of formula one the athletic 